This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Do you know that praise is essential to the growth of a healthy brain? And that experiences of praise and blame affect how long we live? Do you think people shouldn't be judgmental? How judgmental are you? Our ability to judge is far more than a matter of taste. According to my guest for this part of today's show, our appraisals of one another form the contours of our relational landscape, she says. Judgment not only informs our daily interactions, but also shapes our identities and how we interact with the world, from our best friends to our bosses. From infancy, our brains become attuned to praise and blame, and these experiences forge deep-seated values and create what she calls a judgment meter that we use to orient ourselves throughout our lives. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about judgment. We'll start with infancy and childhood when brain development is rather rapid, and we'll progress on to partnerships and marriages, and then we'll even look beyond the familiar world into the public sphere, in schools, and in the workplace. And we'll look at different types of judgment, specifically praise and blame, and see how they affect us throughout our lives and what specific types of praise and blame have the biggest effects. I'm Armin Brutt. We'll start talking about passing judgment when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brutt, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. People have all kinds of excuses for not saving energy. I didn't plug it in. I'll turn it off later. It's not my music. It's just one phone charger. So um, we don't have those Energy Star appliances. So that old window leaks. How much energy and money could the new ones really save? Maybe it's time to stop making excuses and start doing some simple things to save the energy and resources we can. Because a little here and a little there can add up to a lot later. And you just never know what people will need in the future. My name is Sarah. And I'm going to get started today. We can all help save more energy for tomorrow. What's your excuse? For more energy-saving tips that also save money, visit loseyourexcuse.gov parents. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Ad Council, and the station. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Terry Apter, who's the author of Passing Judgment, Praise and Blame in Everyday Life. Terry, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Let's talk about judgment and praise and blame. I want to get, just lay out some some ground rules or some definitions that we can use for sure. the rest of the conversation about what those things are, because I, I think it's not completely intuitive. I get, well, if you think about it, I guess it is. But when, when I was re- thinking about judgment, I hadn't really thought so much about praise and blame. Somehow they seem different. Am I well, the only of course, one when we it? think about judgment, we often think about negative judgment. So people say, you know, don't judge, um, judge not lest ye be judged. And right. it's the idea that you shouldn't judge people, you shouldn't form a negative opinion of them. Um, and it's also, it's 
it's a reminder, those little phrases are are reminders, very sharp reminders, that you are also vulnerable to other people's judgment, that other people can look at you and think very bad thoughts about you. But in fact, judgment is something we do all the time, and it's certainly not just negative. If I say something's wonderful, I'm making a judgment. Uh, If I say something is important or something's valuable, that's a judgment. So we have to realize that making a judgment is also positive. What often gets neglected is how often we are doing this. So, you know, we meet someone, we have an interaction, and we're having a positive or a negative response to other people. We're thinking, gosh, are you someone I want to trust? Are you something, someone I want to be close to? Are you someone who understands me, who gets me? Um, or are you someone I'd rather avoid? Are you dangerous? So those, that, that's the big map. But I talk about it in terms of praise and blame because that's how we experience other people's judgment. So if someone looks at me and thinks, you know, gosh, you're interesting. I want, you know, I, I'm curious about you. I want to get to know you more. Um, I think your ideas are good. Um, I think you're funny. All of that I experience as a kind of praise, even though. Um, it's not a specific compliment, and that's normally what you think of as praise. Oh, well done, good job, great. Um, You know, praise really goes, our, our experience of praise goes way, way beyond that. And so to blame, because, right, well, when you think of blame, if you think of it in um, a strictly logical sense, then you have to be blamed for something, and then you have to ask, well, is it something you did? Is it something you could help? And so if I were a lawyer or if I were a philosopher or if I were a logician, it would be all about that. But in our day-to-day lives, if someone says, you know, I don't like you, well, I'm, you can say, that person can say, I'm not blaming you, I just don't like you. But what you feel <laughs> yeah. is, I'm not what that person wants me to be. I'm not what that person needs me to be. Right. You know, one now, of if things... it's someone we don't know or we don't care about, we can do our best to shrug that off. Yeah. But if it's someone, if it's a parent, if it's a close friend, if it's a partner, if it's a co-worker, then we will feel that very um, deeply, and it will feel like blame because the message is you are not who you should be or you're not who I need you to be. Well, you talk about how this whole neural pathway, if you want to call it, I mean, the the, the brain, this structure is built on judgment from the very, very beginning, that babies are thriving on it and that we we there's been so much talk and it's gone back and forth about self esteem and how much do you praise your kids and do you, are we over praising them and what's that leading to what sorts of of effect is judgment having on the brain well first of all the brain the human brain just does judgment that's that, that's what it does and we can talk about 
how early the onset is in two different ways. As you've said, um, it's very early between, um, you know, from birth, parent to child. The first thing that a child needs, not only food and warmth and physical safety, but also very close, curious, loving praising attention. Who are you? I want to get to know you. What are you feeling? You're so interesting. You're so wonderful. Um, you know, the, the, the growing brain needs that. Without that, there's a great deal of stress and uncertainty. And too much stress is really toxic for the young brain because it prevents a lot of those um, neural connections from being made, the brain becomes less plastic, less able to change and absorb more. But you can also think of um, the long-term need or the long-term compulsion to do judgment uh, from an evolutionary point of view. Yeah, that's Humans what I was especially need interested other in. People yeah. to live. I mean, you know, you can say, oh, I'm independent, I don't need anyone else. We all need other people. You know, as soon as you walk into a heated room, as soon as you sit in a chair, you're sitting, you know, you're, you're drawing on human culture. And we need other people to survive. But we also need to judge other people. We need to assess, are they friend or foe? Should I um, approach them or should I avoid them? And that's the very, very basic template of judgment. And these are um, conducted in very different parts of the brain, so you won't confuse them. You know, you'll, you'll have a pretty good idea of whether you're drawn to someone or whether um, you want to avoid someone. Well, uh, I want, Terry, could you, I want to just go back a little bit to the, the sure. child development part of things and, and the praise there, because that's such an important thing, I think, particularly for parents who are listening. The, yeah. In the beginning, I certainly understand the, the need for praising and encouragement, and you can do this, and, and, and you know, the, even the, the look that you have on your face and the tone of voice is a, mm. is a type of praising and encouragement for kids. But, but there comes a point where you talk about this in the book, that there, there's specific types of praise that are effective and others that are not effective, and it's the, you can be anything you want when you grow up, which sounds like a lovely idea, but it really can be debilitating for kids who are, you know, most of us who are not going to be everything we want to be yes. when we grow up. Or, you you are so good at that. Or, you oh, this is the most awesome thing I've ever heard. Uh, you know, that type of praise that kids, have, at some point, they begin to understand on their own that this is not sincere. Yes. So... When you're a baby, you have an undeveloped sense of self. You're growing it with your parents. Later on, you have your own ideas about what, you know, I mean, later on, I mean, by five or six, you can have your own ideas about what it is you want to do, what it is you want to achieve when you're drawing a picture, when you're, um, you know, uh, tying a shoe. And for um, someone to say, oh, you you know, this is the most wonderful thing in the world, that can be very frustrating and demeaning because it 
isn't attuned to what you are trying to achieve. In the teen years, of course, this becomes even more complicated because teens have a very um, ambivalent uh, attitude towards their parents' approval. They still want it. Um, on the other hand, they have their very own ideas about what they want to look like, what, who they want to be, what they want to achieve. And so sometimes a parent saying, you look lovely, can mean to a teen, I must look really dorky. I must, you know, <laughs> I don't want to look lovely to my parent. Um, but often the tension is you're praising me for something I'm not. You have an outdated view of me. And who are you to judge anyway? Um, you know, if you ask a teen what do you hate most, one, uh, top on their list tends to be other people judging me because right. they feel that limits them. I'm talking with Terry Apter, who's the author of Passing Judgment, Praise and Blame in Everyday Life. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Terry. I'm four years old, and I'm the only one in my whole class that can tie his own shoes. My mom took me to the circus for my birthday. Half my friends already went, but now I've gone too. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. But I got five bucks yesterday, I believe. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Go to CasaFamilyDay.org, take the Family Day Pledge, and get tips on how to talk to your kids about drugs and alcohol. Have dinner with them often, and you can significantly lower their risk of substance abuse. Dinner makes a difference. A message from the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. Son, we got to talk about drinking. I know. I don't want you touching alcohol till you're old enough. Yeah, I, I know, Dad. It's not a big deal. Don't, yeah, I know me, okay? And it is a big deal. Underage drinking is just stupid. Yeah, well, why'd you do it? Look, I did it because we didn't know what we know now. Alcohol affects kids differently, okay? When kids drink, it's more dangerous. And you're my kid. And just because they drink doesn't mean you have to. I, I know. I know. Look, son, I'm trying to help. I've seen what it does. I mean, you may think you can handle it, but when you drink, it screws up your judgment. Listen to me. This is real. I, I know, okay? I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all. Before they're teens. Start talking before they start drinking. And keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Terry Apter, who's the author of Praising Judgment. I'm sorry, Passing Judgment, Praise and Blame in Everyday Life. Uh, so, Terry, just before the break, we were talking about uh, teens and praise and being aware of, of the type of praise. Please continue. Well, teens are very sensitive um, about praise and blame from their parents, about their parents' judgment. They still value praise from a parent. They still crave a parent's approval. I mean, for all the talk 
that there is in um, layman's terms and, you know, the general public about how teens want to reject their parents, how they want to rebel. Study after study shows that they really do continue to care about a parent's opinion. On the other hand, they want it to reflect who they are or who they want to be or who they hope to be. And um, they can be very they can show a lot of irritability if a parent praises them in ways that they think just aren't right. It doesn't reflect right, exactly. who they really are. Yeah. You know, you also talk in the book, I think it was very interesting, about one of the major predictors of divorce and going beyond yeah. things like shared interest and sexual chemistry and the number of arguments that people have. The, it, there, there seems to be a magic ratio, you call it, of praise to blame in the relationship, well, and indicating that you can have... about couples is that they, they start out with this idea that we totally accept one another, um, you know, unconditional love. Well, that's crazy. Um, and it may be unconditional attachment, but if you look at their interchanges they will be it will be packed with both praise and blame and you know blame can be a little question um have you renewed our insurance is dinner ready um you know has my uh, um ha, has the house been painted yet you know all of these things can in certain contexts imply blame you know you haven't done something and um a lot of couples um, quarrel a lot, have very, have, uh, very specific um, directed complaints about one another. And that doesn't seem in itself to be uh, a predictor of divorce, but as long as there's lots of praise as well. So as long as you say, you know, I, I so appreciate what you've done. I'm so interested in you. Let's talk about this. Tell me more. Um, I, you know, I love being with you. As long as there are, it seems, five such positive messages to every um, blaming message, then the um, couple are very likely to stay together. But if there's more blame than praise, if they, you know, then um, that is very likely to damage the marriage and a very strong predictor of divorce. Well, what about if you've got different perceptions? I mean, that, that's got ah, to figure right. in there somewhere. Yeah. I mean, somebody says, hey, is dinner ready? They may not mean that in any sort of a judgmental type of, of way at all, yeah. but it could be perceived depending on whether you're feeling guilty about not having made it or excited about it or or you feel that somebody didn't notice last time you make dinner. So, I mean, there's so many different things that go in there. So, you know, the ratio, depending on who you ask, is going to be different. That's right. That's why knowing that ratio isn't sufficient to save your marriage because— uh, you you know you you see that you've criticized um, your partner quite cruelly, um, and then you say, oh gosh, um, let me mend this by complimenting her. Uh, well, the compliment might fall flat because it doesn't reflect anything she values, or um, you may um, think you're complimenting her, but you are not. 
she may think that you've criticized her when you think you haven't, but it is the perception that matters. And so a lot of, um, you know, marriage work or marriage interchange will be getting to know what it is that um, feels like praise to your partner and what it is that feels like blame. And also being able to pick things up so that you say, uh, you know, I, I asked when dinner was ready, but um, I'm asking because I want to know whether I have time to finish this. I'm just planning my evening's work. I'm fine. So hopefully you can work that out. But that's um, that's a big part of marriage work. And what's interesting is if, if it's a couple that expresses dissatisfaction, then one uh, partner is likely simply not to pick up on the um, positive comments of the other. So the partner who is dissatisfied will say, you know, I didn't hear any praise. But the other person believes that he or she has given a lot of praise. So it is very subjective, but that's what matters in the marriage, how each experiences what the other is doing. Now, you talk in the book about the value of gossip. And something yeah. when I was reading that phrase, I was thinking, boy, there's, there's a, something I had never thought of putting those together before. But I've been talking to a lot of people doing interviews of, about social media, mm -hmm. uh, particularly with teenagers, and there is so much that if you start thinking about it now in terms of praise and and blame and judgment, I mean, that's so much of what social media is about is, oh, look what this one's wearing or that one ate at this restaurant or look at her hair or or his jeans or whatever. That There's so much of it there and so much of it can be so destructive. Talk about the, the benefits and the value of, of gossip. Okay, well, gossip is a way of exchanging unofficial information about who's doing what, about people in your world, about people, you know, you both, both speakers care about. And so you want to know sort of behind the scenes what other people really think of others, what they value, how they judge others. So you may know... Um, you know, what's safe to express to them, what's it's safe to be with them. Um, you know, it's a, it's a way of finding out about your world. Now, I would say that social media is very different from that socially cohesive gossip where you're exchanging interesting news about other people because social media is outside the context in which um, you can uh, pick up on someone's interest or lack of interest. You can question what is it you mean. You can show you're slightly disapproving of what they say or you're questioning it. There is room for explanation. There's room for nuance. In social media, there isn't. And what social media does is magnify and encourage judgment, but in its crudest form. And it doesn't come with all that stuff that we as people, um, as a breed, have learned over our lifetimes and indeed um, over uh, uh, the evolution of humans to pick up on uh, what they're feeling, what they're thinking. Um, it, it, 
that there's a real person there I, that um, I might hurt if I say something. It's it's so crude, it's so brief, um, and it's so destructive because of that crudeness. It brings out the worst in judgment and makes us either for or against. It really pushes the possibility of nuance, of revising our views to the side. What's the best way to tell how what you're saying is being perceived? We're pretty good at this, naturally. Um, faces are great communicators. Voices um, express a great deal. Body language does. Just it's flexibility and observation. Be willing to see what the other person is doing. Be willing to revise your own views. Always be curious about the other person. Remember that lack of curiosity is a form of dismissal, a way of saying you are not interesting enough for me, uh, and I don't value you. Terry Apter is the author of Passing Judgment, Praise, and Blame in Everyday Life. Terry, thanks so much for joining us. It was great to have you. Well, it's been a pleasure. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of 326 hands playing Mozart. This is the sound of 10,942 hands showing appreciation. 64 hands building a house for the homeless. 142 hands swimming a triathlon. 18 hands winning the big game. And this is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called Hands Only CPR and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. It's incredibly easy and effective. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. Find out more about this latest method of CPR at handsonlycpr.org. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, I'm a new father and my company recently offered me the option of working from home a few days a week. That sounds pretty great to me, but I'm curious about the positives and negatives. As someone who's worked from home for more than 20 years, I can definitely see the attraction. You get to work at your own pace without people standing over your shoulder. You reduce your commuting expenses and dry cleaning costs. You have a lot more time with the family and you get to work in your PJs. Sounds like a no-brainer, doesn't it? Maybe yes, uh, maybe no. Let's start with some of the advantages. Extra time. Nationwide, the average commute is 30 minutes each way. But in major metro areas, hour-long commutes are pretty common. Add in the time it takes you to get ready in the morning and unwind when you get home, and you can see that telecommuting could easily give you an extra hour or two with your family every day. Depending on the particulars of your job, you might be able to take off in the middle of the day to run errands, you might be able to start early or work later, and so on. Extra money. You'll spend less on gas, tolls, parking, subway fare, lunches, and so on. Focus and productivity. People won't be dropping into your office to chat or get you to buy Girl Scout cookies, and you'll avoid unnecessary phone calls and other distractions. That will enable you to get more work done. 
A variety of studies have found that employees who work at home are 13 to 25 percent more productive than those who work in the office. Health and morale. People who have control over their workplace tend to be less stressed, which makes them physically and mentally healthier. Now for the disadvantages, some of which are actually related to the advantages I just talked about. Work-family balance. The reason why remote workers are more productive is that they typically work longer hours. A study at the University of Texas, for example, estimated that telecommuters put in five to seven per hours per week more than office workers. Working from home, you may be tempted to check your email a few times after dinner and before bed, make a few extra calls over lunch, and so on. This will be an especially big problem if you are a workaholic. It's a lot harder to knock around ideas and brainstorm with other humans when you're not there. Working alone, even if you have regular email, text, and other contact with your team, can be pretty isolating. That can lead to depression and other mental health issues which may affect your work. Working from home, your contribution to the company might be less visible and you could find yourself less connected with your coworkers. There's a lot that goes on at lunch besides eating. It's where relationships are forged, office politics are discussed, and important rumors are shared. Unrealistic expectations. Trying to get any serious work done while there's a child in the house is going to be very, very difficult. Babies, for example, have a knack for demanding attention right in the middle of important conference calls. Bottom line, don't let yourself be a stranger to the gang at the office. Stop by when the regional manager is in town. If a group's getting together for someone's birthday, be sure to make it. After all, you deserve a chance to catch up on what's happening in the office and enjoy a little corporate camaraderie. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.